Okay, so we're here, we're live. Okay, brilliant. Okay, welcome. This is uh, Sam Kovac and you're watching Parkour Coach Companion. I'm here with the mighty Chris Keithley and uh, he's, got his, he's got his Mr. Strong mug. Very it's important. <laughs> it's, it's, it's attending all meetings with me these days. Excellent. It's a big mug as well. That looks like the size of you. Uh, it's basically <laughs> head size. I, um, my, my youngest brother, who also trains, got it for me for Christmas nice. um, a few years back. And it is normally full of tea, but full of water today. Yeah, yeah. Good choice. Good choice. Um, so how are, you, how are you doing, Chris? I, I know that, um, well, off air, we talked about a recent injury, well, accident that you had. Yeah, non-training injury. Um, Otherwise, lockdown's been very good to me. Um, I'm privileged, privileged enough to have my own garden. Um, even before I moved into the house, we built a gym in the back garden. So I've <laughs> ha had access to a great deal more in the way of like facilities and places to enjoy them than a lot of people have. Um, sure. So aside, aside from deciding that headbutting my roof was a good idea, um, everything else has been going fine. Yeah. Good. And you're, you're right in the middle of London as well. So obviously you've, you've, uh, are you? People that lived here would say that I'm very much on the outskirts. If you ever speak yeah. to Andy Day, he will tell you I don't even live in London. He's wrong. <laughs> um, but yeah. for those familiar with the transport system, I'm out in zone five, which is quite okay. close to the perimeter. I'm on one of the, uh, the external boroughs of London. Mm. So okay. if you go further out, it becomes Watford. Yeah. Okay. And for those that don't know, or, um, yeah, I guess uh, new to this channel or whatever, then could you just just explain what you do, where you coach? and Yeah, yeah. sure. Um, so I coach at Parkour Generations uh, primarily in London at our academy classes, either over at the Chainstall Gym or a range of our outdoor classes that we have mm -hmm. around London as well. Um, I also tutor the ADAPT qualifications internationally, uh, so parkour coaching qualifications around the world uh, and I also coach and tutor the Parkour UK level one and level two qualifications in the UK. Mm. Okay cool so you're and how long have, how long have you well it's been a while now I imagine but how, how long have you been how long have you been a coach how long have you been a parkour coach? Um, so I transitioned into coaching it's either March or April 2007 um, so about 13 years now. I yeah. started parkour after Jump London back in 2003. Um, and before Parkour Generations existed, when Forrest and Dan and Stefan were doing some coaching with Urban Free Flow, um, I started going to the academy once it moved over to West London. Um, and after a couple of years, yeah. they set up their own uh, group and company and they asked me if I would like to come on board and uh, teach with them. Mm. And did you kind of, I mean, I guess there wasn't a huge gap of time between you coaching and you starting training and that, that was kind of quite early days really. So did you, did you kind of see coaching as something that you naturally got into or was it something that kind of uh, you thought, you know, you, this is, this is a passion of mine and I'm, you know, I quickly want to spread this sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so although I hadn't really considered parkour coaching when I first got into parkour, I was already teaching steel pans, which is a musical instrument from Trinidad and Tobago, so that 
Really? It's, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I've been learning that since I was eight. Um, and when I was, it was either like late college or early university, but my teacher there asked me if I was able to help out uh, with some of the, our local Bala after school music programs. Yeah. Um, so I began helping there. Then there was a school that he formerly taught at but couldn't teach at anymore. He asked me if I'd be interested in taking over there. So I did. Um, which was round about the same time that I started parkour. So I found parkour when I was 19, just uh, had just gone to university. <laughs> so yeah. I, I was teaching steel pans, beginning to practice parkour. Um, and so when I started going to classes, I'd already been training out with the community for a couple of years around London yeah. uh, anyway. Mm. Um, so at the time that Dan and Forrest and Stefan asked me to come on board i think i've been training for about three and a half years mm, mm. um but, but i actually had an equal or slightly more time of experience of teaching now it's obviously teaching something very different but a lot of the skills are transferable knowing how yeah. to manage a group manage your time within the class setting mm. um, so i think both probably a, a slightly broader amount of parkour experience than a lot of the other students in the class and some teaching skills and experience kind of melded me into a fairly uh, useful candidate to come on board and uh, help them spread parkour through the classes. Mm -hmm. And do you, do you still do any steel, steel pans now? I still play, uh, but I don't teach anymore. It was one of the... And it's interesting because when I first started parkour coaching, it was within a year of graduating. Um, mm -hmm. And I'd had... I worked in merchandising whilst I was at university. So I, I left uni not immediately needing to think about, okay, what is my job or my career plan? But kind of having a couple of different avenues of, well, I'll see if I can make steel pan teaching grow and do that full time, or maybe I go into merchandising in a more full time way and I can just let them kind of feel themselves out. And then parkour coaching came into the mix as well. It's like, well, this is great. Now I've got three things and I'll just kind of see, do I keep a balance? Do, does one of them kind of take over? Yeah. And because, because with parkour coaching, there was a group and a team of us, it was much more flexible that if I needed to go away or do something, there was someone else that could step in and do that teaching. Um, whereas with something like steel pan teaching, it's much, much harder to get someone to come in and cover you for six weeks and yeah, people yeah. are learning People are learning specific songs. So although you want some continuity, if you are uh, getting parkour coaches to cover you, I think there's still a lot more latitude in how they want to do those lessons or building on what they can see in front of them rather than having to know the very specific things that you need to be taught in that time. Mm. Um, so I think a combination of that, that flexibility was one of the big pra pragmatic things that made me go down that line. Mm. Um, and also I think because it was relatively early in any kind of parkour career or industry, there were a lot of opportunities in those yeah. first couple of years mm. and not that many people that were able to kind of step up and provide that. Whereas now there's a much, much bigger array of coaches and organizations. Uh, so there's still a lot of work, but it, the opportunities are spread amongst a much larger group of uh, quite competent people. Mm. So essentially, um, would you say that, you know, you've, you've formed a career of, of parkour coaching? Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, it is, 
essentially the only full-time job I've had since I graduated. Yeah. Um, so I, 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 I was lucky that in many ways I, I fell into it. Um, and because I have always been a coach and a provider and not a business owner, uh, a lot of those challenges of park or business ownership haven't fallen to me. So I consider myself very fortunate that I get to do all the exciting bits of the job <laughs> without any of the more tedious uh, background parts. Mm. For, the, for the most part. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I saw recently, um, I think something from Parkour Generation saying about how obviously the coronavirus has affected level one candidates trying to get their mm. hours signed off for level two is that right sorry yeah by, yeah by level twos yeah yeah um so essentially with some of the adapt program there's supervised hours that you need to do to complete your level one uh, certification and the reality is just there's very very few parkour classes going on in the world right now and certainly maybe none in the countries that candidates find themselves uh, so I think just the most responsible thing is to give people the time to complete that because we want we want people to be able to go through the certification and continue growing as coaches. Uh, but now is a very challenging environment to try and make that happen in. So yeah. as a, we, we want to strike the best balance possible between making sure that people are actually improving and taking it seriously, but also giving them the opportunities to do so in a responsible way without uh, making anyone sick. Exactly. And also on that point, shout out, um, you know, if anyone watching is level one and happens to be watching this, then get in contact with um, Chris and myself. I'm level two coach as well. Um, so if you need any help, um, then yeah you can chat with us uh, and funny enough uh i, I guess in a, in a strange way chris uh was the person person's brain who i had to change in order to <laughs> get my level two uh passed uh which was yes when did i get my level two i think it was 20 maybe 2016 20 yeah i think 2016 um four, four years ago sounds about like yeah, which is which is crazy because I can remember <laughs> the very much the nerves and this the feeling of like you know I've got to get this right I've got to get this right I've got to change yeah. the man's mind so that he'll give me a tick you know <laughs> yeah uh, I, I would like to think of it as convincing me rather than changing my mind well, uh, I, I, yes, I, yes. I, I think any assessor should go into those situations with an open mind as to what they see in front of them uh, you had more hair back then as well. I did, I did, and I, I've gone for the you know the quarantine, the quarantine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, it's not. I haven't aged uh, beyond. Wow. Well, well, we'll see. Gonna, we, we've all aged. <laughs> it's the one thing we yeah. can't hold back. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, how oh, there's a lot to there's a lot to talk about. I guess um, the main thing I'm interested in is what I'm trying to. I guess do with talking to these coaches different coaches is mm. first of all get more conversations going but also i want to try and you know pick the the right fruit from people's brains you know and i, yeah. and I think that i what i'm interested in, in in your thoughts are um is i guess within the context of this podcast and what you can talk about you know what what are the what are the key 
the key elements that you think really have been been essential to good teaching practice and also you know boiling down to this this big question of what helps people improve what are what are the, mm. the greatest uh you know beneficiaries to to people's progression so i, I yeah. mean take that how you want it's a very big question <laughs> it's a very broad thing yeah. but if you can um, think of any things in particular that are useful then yeah yeah i mean i think if, if we start at kind of just our most base responsibilities obviously the the most fundamental thing for any parkour coach is just to create safe environments in which to practice. Um, so in terms of outdoor spaces, I community wide, it's very clear that, you know, check your surfaces, check your obstacles. Um, but I think as a coach, there's always going to be a responsibility of making sure that however much we encourage our students to do that for themselves, the responsibility ultimately falls to us. And so not just kind of checking them, but making sure they're really, the environment is really prepared for all of the deliberate, but also the unintended consequences of training on those. And I think a lot of people just think like, well, as long as it's safe for doing this thing well, it's safe to use in class. But actually a lot of the time it's going to be people doing it either badly because let's say they've undershot a jump and so they're hitting obstacles uh, horizontally or whether it's simply that they're placing a lot more stress and contact upon those obstacles because they're newer to parkour and newer to sp uh, sport whatever it may be mm. um, and I, I think if we just look at the basic safety concerns probably the number one mistake is people thinking oh this is good for doing parkour, parkour like well or neatly on it and that's the criteria they use for creating a safe environment mm. whereas actually it's like is it safe for people to behave quite badly on this mm. is actually a much a much better base uh, point for us to start from as parkour coaches mm. um, and then once we've gone from a safe environment we want to create hopefully an enjoyable environment uh, for training in and that's going to come down to partly the types of activities we choose but also the the environment and the social environment that we create within classes as well yeah, absolutely. Um, and I chose the word enjoyable quite carefully because I think a lot of coaches talk about creating fun environments. And I think fun is a much more nebulous thing. And that ultimately, that there's some things that I can find very, very fun, but not that meaningful. And so mm. although it was an enjoyable one-off experience, I'm less likely to go back to it. Whereas mm. an enjoyable class can be enjoyed for a number of reasons. It might be that they find it fun, but it might be that they find it really worthwhile or really challenging. And so kind of understanding individual students needs of what they enjoy is much more key to creating an enjoy enjoyable environment for everyone than just thinking i want to make this class fun like, fun's always a good base point and especially if you find yourself teaching uh, younger students and newer students i think that's a really good starting point because that will motivate people and will help them enjoy it on an initial level but as people become more um I don't want to say intense of their training, but maybe as they're starting to take it more, yeah, yeah, more focused, they're starting to take it more seriously, or they're maybe expanding the types of goals they want to achieve through their training. Mm. I think they want, you don't want to go home from a miserable experience because that will be very de demotivating. 
but I don't know that it's fun necessarily that will keep everyone coming back. For sure, there's a lot of people that that is the case, and there's some groups mm. where the idea of either fun or play as a learning tool is really, really important. Um, but for me, I think as long as people are achieving what they want to through the classes, mm. then that will bring a sense of enjoyment and kind of satisfaction that will help uh, keep bringing them back. Yeah, and and for on a typical day, I mean. For me, one, one of the greatest challenges, um, particularly when you're talking about this kind of uh, this sense of helping people, you know, enjoy, enjoy the session and be fulfilled in the session. A big challenge I find is, you know, on a, on a given day, I could be teaching, um, you know, eight year olds up yeah. to 16 plus or whatever. And sometimes within the space of a, of a few hours. And I find it I find it very difficult to kind of. Um, being able to quickly switch between different ways of teaching and different attitudes that I project to, to the appropriate group, if you, if you get me. Yeah. Um, do, do, you, do you find that as well? Do you, do you have like, I don't really know what your typical day of coaching looks like, but I imagine that you do teach different age groups and stuff. Yeah, and I, th- I think probably the day, well, prior to our current lockdown situation, but the day that most encapsulated the range uh, was my Sunday classes used to be family class in the morning, which is anything from like two to seven year olds with their parents in the same uh, space and then go to the chainsaw afterwards, teach our adult parkour classes, which are 14 up. And I would say the most common age range is 14 to 50, but we will have... Um, we, but we will have people older than that uh, attend the mm-hmm. classes as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, th- I think having this idea of what do different students value helps me find it quite easy to switch because if I can, if I can have a clear idea for myself of what are the different values and can I have an exercise where people want or people that are looking for fun, they can find the fun in this but people are looking for challenge can find the challenge in this and people are looking right. for I don't know, the novelty or I've done something I've not done before can find that in it. Then it makes it much easier for me to just kind of emphasize those elements to different students. Mm. And then whether that's age range or personality, the content doesn't always have to change that much. It's just the way that I frame it for the students. And I think if you're, mm. if all you have to change is the framing and not the whole structure and the whole nature of the class it becomes easier to switch between these uh, kind of coaching personalities than if every class feels like a completely different and unique entity. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I like that. That's cool. Um, do, you, do you find that, um, are you much more, I mean, I've, I've talked to a few coaches already and there's kind of some differences. Are you, are you like a, a very tight planner for the way that you uh, kind of, get ready for to do a session or are you more improvised or are you I, I can imagine probably which one of you are but um <laughs> I, I would imagine that you would guess that I'm the second of the two no I thought you'd be I thought you'd be a plan uh, ah interesting yeah it, is this because of how important I stress planning is via various courses or <laughs> just by my nature uh, potentially but I, I guess from experiencing your you know you, you taking on the the level two course it seemed yeah. very, it, well it seemed very, yeah it seemed very structured and uh, kind of well well, well 
Yeah, well, so interestingly, I'd, I'd say that tutoring a course and teaching a parkour class are very, very different beasts. And so, at, but so when I am tutoring a course, yes, there's a much, much higher level of planning. Uh, there's a much more rigid framework. I'm much more careful about, okay, exactly which location are we going to use for each part because that will maximize the value of each part. Absolutely. I, I, whereas for me with the parkour class, I never go in blind. I, I, I think my basic approach is always to have two or three key ideas that I want to incorporate into the session. Yeah. Um, and then build towards those. And the reason I don't like to over plan my sessions is simply that I, I believe rightly or wrongly that I'm quite good at making uh, very quick decisions about mm. how to develop ideas. Yeah. So what in, what it ends up with is a relatively unplanned but very cohesive class so as it develops i can link back oh i can choose to do this and i know we're prepared for this because of these things that we did in the warm-up and i can make those links for my students so hopefully they come across as planned and they are planned but they are planned as they go along so it's never just a case of okay and now we'll do this random thing there's always a reason for the choice that i'm making mm. um but because it's not rigidly planned and because the nature of our classes is that often people might sign up a few hours before a class or some people might turn up that you don't yeah. even know are going to be there. Mm. It lets me respond to that dynamic situation mm -hmm. much easier than having a more rigid plan. And some of our, some of our coaches plan a, lot, a great deal more than me. Um, and it brings advantages to the class and probably the instruction is a little bit clearer for the students because they can simply set up things in a way that you can't if you are, adjusting the class as you go yeah. um, but it means that if I know people have found something particularly challenging I can either throw out the next idea that I wanted to go to for a little while and then spend more time focusing on that and developing those ideas mm -hmm. um, or equally if they found something particularly easy I can rapidly uh, escalate it to a point that I may not necessarily have thought about in advance mm -hmm yeah um but i think if for people thinking about which approach they choose they really need to critically evaluate if they are making decisions in the moment how valuable does the effect of those decisions end up being for your students so just because you can make decisions quickly if they end up being relatively valueless then perhaps more planning in advance is going to be a much more critical thing for that coach um if you know that well, if I'd had half an hour to make that decision, I'd have come to the same choice, then maybe that's a, an indication that yeah. you could be a little bit more flexible in how you develop the class as you go along. Mm. Um, but, but I would say that if you are developing the class as you go, that's not the same, same as making, making it up as you go along. It's mm. always, yeah. how, do I, how do I expand on what has happened already in the class rather mm. than, and now choose a new random exercise? Sure. And do you, and you kind of touched on this before, but are you, do you, when you have these, you know, few ideas before you go into a class, do you base, do you base your classes around things like principles and um, I guess attributes of movement or do you, do you think of like, okay, well, these guys need to, these guys are pretty uh, inexperienced with vaulting. So we're going to dedicate, you know, this amount of time to vaulting or do you yeah how, how how does that how does that that kind of float in your mind before you before you enter a class? yeah i mean i think the nature of the class changes 
which approach is open to me quite a lot. So for instance, our ongoing parkour classes will almost always have a mix of very experienced students that have been coming to classes and we're measuring it in years and potentially people that are there for their first day. Um, so, so I'm all typically for, for those, those classes, classes, I'm always going to try and have two different uh, types of ideas. One being if this is someone's first day, I want them to have an experience with some obstacles that they can go away thinking, okay, I now know how to interact with that obstacle. Not that there's only one way of doing it, but that if, they're in, if they encounter similar situations again in the future, again in the future they've, they've got, got a clear, clear idea, idea of how, how can, can I try and traverse this or deal with this uh, movement challenge. But a lot of my students will already have those tools. So I also want to have a separate idea of if you are familiar with those situations, situations what am I going to try and help you improve on today? And that's where ha having a more attribute of movement or a, a movement skill will give me a clear idea because it's very easy to meld those two things together. If you've not, never done this before, you are going to focus more on the individual obstacles. If that's something that you're already familiar with, today you're going to try and do it as fast as you can or as smoothly as you can or with as little as planning as you can and, and just adapt as you go in as many different ways. Um, so I'll try and give them a clear criteria because it helps people focus their training and that way 10 repetitions helps me assess if they're improving but also helps them get a sense of am I improving mm. whereas if it's if it's just okay, okay we're do. doing vaulting but you already know this do this 10 times it becomes a lot more hit and miss as to whether people are able to use that as valuably as they can for themselves not that they're incapable of doing it and at any time I can see my students deviating but in a way that I think is useful for them individually and not having a negative impact on the rest of the class I'm generally happy to let that student go down that rabbit hole mm. um, but I want to make sure that if they, if they don't have that clear idea that I'm able to provide that context and that structure for them within the class mm. Cool, cool. That's yeah, interesting. Do you um, do you tend to have a kind of formula for the structure of the class, as in like um, you know, warm up, technical, conditioning, that sort of thing? Do you, is that is that more free flowing as well, or is that something that you kind of um, have in mind? Mm, um, so for our indoor classes, I think I often have a slightly, slightly more typical, typical structure. structure. And we'll spend a lot more time uh, doing some explicit warm-up activities, um, partly because we have uh, a little bit more kind of space that allows for that, whereas in an outdoor environment, sometimes you're lucky and you've got a very wide open space, but sometimes it might be a much more congested area, so it's going to naturally segue into more movement-based activities quite early on. Um, I tend not to have a particularly rigid structure. Um, if, if the kind of needs of the class allows, I've naturally segued towards having, let's say maybe the most demanding physical challenges towards the end of the class so that students can feel a little bit fresher uh, for some of the other elements. Mm. But, but there will be times when I actually intentionally want people to feel more more physically drained whilst having to do those movement tasks because yeah. if, if your technique is only good when you're fresh then that's a much more limited 
uh, context in which you're able to uh, express that technique and those uh, those movement skills. Mm. So there will be times when I deliberately um, switch it around, but as a general rule, I will try and leave the most physically demanding things towards the end of the class. Mm-hmm. Um, or I will try and make sure that if we include some very physically demanding work as part of the warm up, which is uh, not unheard of. <laughs> but, yeah. but, but then the initial activities after the warm up, I'll try and allow them to recover, uh, recover or regain any strength that they may need for the more demanding technical parts of the class. Mm. Um, but, but in terms of format, it's, it's quite open. Uh, the, the more people in the class, the more important I think the format becomes simply yes. in terms of, yeah. in terms of group management. Right. So uh, if, if you've got more than 20 people in the class, the need to split people into smaller groups and find ways of moving those groups around the space and the drills becomes much more important. And that's when I'll probably revert to a more rigid format to maybe doing circuits of different exercises and drills. Um, but if I'm closer to 10 people, it gives me a lot more flexibility in how I build that class responding to the needs of the students as we go along. Mm. And um, one thing I've been thinking about quite a lot um, is the idea of a kind of syllabus, um, you know, coaching syllabus, parkour syllabus. Mm. And um, I, I kind of, I, I'm vaguely aware that these, these types of things exist uh, amongst coaches in different places. Um, personally, I've tried to kind of make a, a kind of parkour skill matrix of different right, yeah, attributes yeah. of uh, movement, just to kind of like have it down in front of me and see like this is what we can this is what we can teach these are the progressions and and uh, I think maybe one of my aims whether in lockdown or not is to create some sort of body of work of essentially parkour coaching and, mm. and send it to lots of coaches have it ripped completely apart and then you know build it up and make something quite substantial so I was wondering in terms of you know you working with um parkour generations and stuff do have you is is there is there something that that you and others follow or is it more kind of due to you know you're you're very experienced now so you have a very clear idea of 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 what works and what doesn't work and how to help people learn vaults and how to help people jump better and things like that but but is there is there anything that that's that you guys have kind of uh made essentially that, that's a, some sort of guideline there's a few different things um certainly when we have our introductory courses they follow a much tighter syllabus because uh for a start we've got a much more homogenous group of people still a very diverse a group athletically and with life experience, but certainly yes, as it relates to the experience of parkour, they're a much more homogenous group. Um, and also it's a much more clearly defined period. So I think anytime you know this is a fixed term uh, course, whether it's a term at a school yeah. or a six week yeah. course you're running, your ability to be like, well, okay, well, these are the most important things because I might not see these people again. Um, so I, I, I think it becomes... I don't want to say linear because it's still got so many permutations and ways that it can yeah. go. But I think it does become very much a, uh, this is week five. It's going to build on what we did in week three or whatever it may be. 
Um, whereas for a lot of our other classes, it's not just the case that we've got people that have been coming for years and people that have only been coming for you know a session or two, but also that we've deliberately tried to create an academy where people can go to different nights. Mm. So it might be that you go to a Monday for a couple of weeks, but then you go to the Wednesday class. And I think having, you know, like 10, 20 classes a week, all moving through the same syllabus, would remove the possibility for people to come multiple times a week and feel like they're really getting pushed and stretched in yeah. the same way. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's, there's always going to be limitations, but also possibilities in terms of how your class structure more broadly works. Um, and if it is same people every week, that just allows the ability for you to build on in a much more deliberate way than if these are people that you might only see only once every two months, but are training potentially multiple times a week regardless. Mm. Um, so I think that's one context. When I go to a school, I tend to have a much more fixed idea. I would say based more around types of movement situations or types of obstacles rather than specific techniques. <laughs> um, and I've kind of moved away. So there will be some, we can call it vaulting type, but essentially there'll be some balancing type. How do you deal with thin obstacles? There'll be some vaulting. How do you deal with kind of waist high obstacles? Mm. How do you deal with moving between platforms or gaps? Um, and generally, partly because they're so easily available and partly because I, th I do find they've always been quite motivating for students, but some kind of how do you deal with vertical walls, whether that's wall runs or tic-tacs, whatever it may be. And in many ways, in a, in a six week or like a half term at eight weeks at a school, like, I don't know that a tic-tac or wall run is going to have a huge difference to their life, but I do want to give them some sense of this is another type of obstacle that you can use and engage with yeah. and possibly depending on the students might change, you know, are we just doing tic-tacs just with the foot? Are we doing it where you're going over a box and you're using your hand to help you? Are we just going to do some wall run type work instead? Mm. But as long as they've got some experience of engaging in that different movement environment, then I think that provides new value to them. Um, so my syllabus is much more situational like that, that or obstacle-based obstacle -based rather than necessarily specific technique-based. Yeah, well, it's, it's funny you mention this because when I was speaking with, with Tom Taylor in, in the previous hmm. uh, episode, um, we, we did touch on, on, for me, a sort of bit of a debate in my head at the moment about whether parkour is moving away as a practice, um, away from the, the, the obstacle, and is becoming more about the movement. And, um, you know, obviously there's lots of, there's additional debate about, you know, whether Instagram and, and YouTube and everything, where parkour lies within these medias and how, and, and what, which ones are better at, at inspiring and, 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 and helping other people. And um, I, I've kind of, in my mind, thought that maybe in some ways, Instagram is, is definitely highlighting the movement of parkour. It's not, mm. it's not as much uh, about the obstacle. And maybe the, maybe the more long-form, traditional parkour video that you see on YouTube, maybe, maybe it's intrinsically 
about the obstacle because you're seeing more. You're seeing a spot being used. So, so for example, Vauxhall is so iconic and not necessarily because of the movements, which were obviously very varied and incredible in their own ways, but as a spot, it, it was a centerpiece that people could focus on. Um, and, and I wonder, and I wonder as well, maybe on a deeper level, whether this, this moving away from the obstacle to, to the focus on movement is actually, is actually becoming demotivating for people. And because essentially focusing on, on movement leads, leads itself to comparison and then feeling a bit shit about yourself, <laughs> you know, uh, seeing, seeing, you know, Verky doing a standing on a thin wall, backflip to one foot, double cork off. Or yeah, whatever yeah. It was. You know, that, that, that's incredible. Um, but I, I wonder whether a sense of satisfaction that may have been found previously in, in more of just the, oh, wow, this is a new obstacle. It's the new place that I've explored and I can do a few things around it is now, yeah. coming, well, I can't do, I can't do a congainer. So, you know. Yeah. I mean, there, there were both good and bad points to that. I think one, one of the good things is that, I think the parkour community has always had a slight issue with fetishizing certain spots. So yes, Vauxhall was great, but everyone went there because it was great. I mean, South Bank is still, still that. And, and, and maybe even fetishizing certain movements within those spots. I think the, the uh, IMAX, the, the Concat, Con Precision, Con Clear, like, yeah, <laughs> it, it becomes very, yeah, it draws people in. Mm. Um, and, and maybe that was a good example of probably the combination of those two things, where it's like, it's very specific movements in very specific locations and people end up chasing those things. Mm. Um, I, I think there's a lot of inspiration you can draw, for, whether it's watching people in real life or watching them on various forms of social media. But I think as soon as it moves away from inspiring people and more into inviting comparison, there's always going to be ne some negatives to that, whether it's yeah. feelings of whether it's feelings of inadequacy in a more direct comparative way, or whether it's a loss of creativity in the sense of how people are thinking about their movement and their environment. And I, I think even more than the negativity, from a parkour perspective, I, I think, think that, that loss of creativity is worse possibly for, from a mental health perspective the feelings of inadequacy in comparison is the more dangerous of the two mm, but, but in, ter term, in terms of what i believe parkour to be and how i conceptualize parkour i think the movement is a result of the environment that you find yourself in and that kind of causal relationship for me is still very much at the heart of the practice so mm. anytime that relationship gets flipped it's not always bad and there will be times when kind of the physical and mental challenge of being able to move in a very specific way is absolutely still for me part of the part of the practice but when it just becomes chasing those techniques or adding an extra spin or whatever it may be I think it started to lose a little lose sight a little bit of kind of what makes, makes parkour, parkour unique, unique and part of what makes parkour relative unique is the idea of being able to 
traverse your environment. And it doesn't have to be in a very direct locomotive or uh, I believe as people like to say efficient way. Um, yeah. But it's, but it's still about cultivating a relationship between the practitioner and the environment that they find themselves in and being adaptable to those different environments. Mm. And if an environment doesn't give you the possibility to do the movements that you want to do, then that, I mean, in many ways, that's great because that forces you to adapt and think creatively about both the space yeah. and how to move. Mm. Um, whereas a lot of people just go and look for a, a better spot. Yes. And, and again, that loses for me a little bit of the essence of mm. what parkour is. Mm. And yeah, I, I guess on that point, do you, you, you know, you, you said you've been around for a long time now, a lot longer than, well, a lot of people <laughs> really, uh, in, in the, in the parkour scene, especially in the UK. And, um, do you, how, how do you, how do you honestly feel about the changes with, with parkour and, and its practice? Because, you know, you, you've, you've, you can see the, you've seen these changes. Um, whereas a yeah. lot of the people, they, you know, they are now growing up on, I don't know, Ed Scott and, and growing up on Tim champion and stuff. And, and, yeah. and that, that by no means is a bad thing, but I'm just, but for you, you know, you've seen so much change that how, how do you, how do you feel about parkour as a, as a practice and its evolution? Yeah. I'm bro- broadly, I, Broadly, I have a conflict within myself, which is I strongly want to keep a lot of what I believe makes makes parkour parkour special special, um, from from the first place um, and how it began. So the sense of challenge, the sense of developing an environment, uh, a relationship with with your environment and about it being adapting to your environment rather than the movement itself. Um, so, So... there's a very conservative part of me that believes strongly in its roots and I want to keep them there. But then there's also part that if you are just rigid and limited to that, that in itself is excluding part of what parkour um, is, which was, it's a way of exploring and you can't explore without growing and evolving in some way. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so there's, there's a contradiction in the heart of the practice to some extent. Um, and I think if we look at some of the, just because I happened to see it again in a video a couple of days ago. Let, let's take the uh, side flip precision that was done at Canada Water. Yes. Um, no I forget well. who it was that did it first. Max. Um, Max Barker, yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, but so the first time that happened, for me, that wasn't necessarily about the movement because that's still like, how can I interact with this environment? This is a way I can do it. And it was a great uh, technical possibly physical and mental challenge to to do that um and it was also a creative way of using this the space because no one had really seen that done before so actually in many ways the people that are doing a lot of those things for the first time to me i don't see that necessarily as being an evolution of parkour as much as a very good encapsulation of what parkour is the right, right. The, the, tr- the trouble that then just becomes when everyone's trying to then copy and replicate that rather than necessarily those specific um, evolutions. And again, like p- people might do side precisions all over the place now. I'm not one of those people, but it's, it's, more, <laughs> it's, it's more common. Um, but wh- when people are doing it in more interesting 3D environments, so one of the nice things about uh, Canada Water, for people that aren't very familiar with that spot, is 
the railing isn't quite at the same height as the wall that you're going to be taking off uh, from. Um, you, you have to step. You have to step up to the wall. Yeah. The railing isn't even flat; it's at an angle. So actually, it's a relatively unique environment for that spot. Mm. Whereas people that are just going and finding a gap to do it over, mm. for the sake of being able to do a cyclic precision, mm. I think is very different. So for me, there's still even if we take that style of movement and expression, there's still a big difference between what looks like someone just trying to choose a place that they can do that and someone doing that style of movement through a much more interesting environment. And um, again, I don't want to necessarily fetishize obvious parkour spots too much because just because a spot maybe um, appears quite limited at first doesn't yeah, mean it's a bad exactly. parkour spot. Exactly. So I, I, I don't want to say that you have to go and find a really, really convoluted spot in which to, to move, yeah. move um, in case I'm giving that impression. But I do think sometimes I get a sense that this spot was only chosen because it let you do this movement. And that's where I think there's the difference. Rather than I came to this spot and I, I tried to meld what I'm capable of with what this spot offers. And this is the product of those two separate things. Mm. Yeah, and I, I guess it's 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 interesting in itself to talk about this idea of creativity. Um, I remember quite um, quite well on, on my level one course with Dan Edwards, and Dan saying, you know, creativity isn't uh, necessarily finding new movements. It's creativity comes from being limited. And uh, I, I, I thought, you know, I wasn't sure at first and I kind of agreed. And I, I've come from a tiny village in the middle of the, well, basically on the North York Moors. Um, yeah. And uh, for, for many years, basically just dealt with a few rails and a bridge. And that was my, that was my home. That was my training ground. And that taught me a lot. <laughs> and uh, I, yeah, so I, I find the word creativity... I find it really interesting how people talk about it because obviously as well, you have people who are much more on the, the maybe you could say line side of things who are thinking of different combinations of different movements. So red block of yeah. motion and this kind of, this kind of style of, of movement or free running or however you want to define it. Um, and it's funny to me that, we can kind of use creativity in in that sense, but also for me that means something so different to being creative with with a, with a simpler setting, where it's again like you say, it's not really can I link a Webster into you know uh, into whatever. It's oh well, this wall is at a slightly strange angle. I wonder if I could get from there to there in this way. Do, do you see what I mean? Yeah. Well, I think creativity has so many different elements to it that using it as a, word, a buzzword on its own can be relatively meaningless. Mm. So we, 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 we can, can talk, talk about, about a very creative use of space and using the space in a way that people wouldn't have thought. And if you take 100 athletes and 90 of them all have the same idea about how to move that through that space even if it is in a very acrobatic way and like using lots of unusual movements I I, but they've done it 10 times in other spots each as well 
And, and I, I don't know how truly creative that is. So like one of the questions I pose to candidates when on the coaching courses and they're teaching creativity is to ask people at the end of the session, like, did you do anything like you? Did you create anything that you haven't done before? Mm. And if the answer is no, then even if it's moving in a more esoteric manner, were you actually working on creativity or just a specific style of movement? Um, and don't get me. Oh yes, I'm, I'm still here. Had a slight, um, slight but, glitch in the matrix. Um, but that's, that, that, that's fine. The, the matrix tends to do that. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. You, you, I missed a lot of that. Could you, um, could you maybe repeat some of that? Yeah, sure. Um, so one of the questions I pose to a lot of people when they come to coaching courses and they're often one of the uh, exercises I get someone to do on a course is to run a session based on creativity, partly so that we can have this type of discussion and partly because I think a lot of the, the methods that coaches use for trying to teach creativity don't necessarily work very well for that purpose, or at least they may work very well for what they're actually trying to do, but what they're trying to do isn't creativity. So the question I will always pose to students after they've gone through one of those sessions is, did you do anything new? Did you actually create something or did you just choose from your existing toolbox of options? Mm. Um, and a lot of the time they don't. And I also, I think a lot of people get wrapped up in the idea they want to create something great immediately. And if you look yes. at any other, yeah. any other artistic medium, that's not the case. No one's first symphony is their best. No one's first painting is going to get sold for millions. Like there is a lot of garbage along the way. And I think actually one of the most valuable things is, especially for people like me, because I, I tend to have a more mechanical way of thinking. And I certainly for a long time moving, it was a much more mechanical way of moving. Um, but just getting people used to the idea of like doing trash, having stupid ideas that, okay, well it was brand new. Probably I'm never going to repeat that, but I still created something. And it's through that constant process that people are likely to then create something that either they're proud of or they want to try and replicate. Um, so we, we can think of creativity in terms of a creative use of space and using it in new ways. We can think of it in terms of moving in new ways, even if the space is a very familiar one. Um, but something that I think is actually the hardest thing to cultivate is the inclination to be creative. So there'll be some students who naturally want to do that. Yeah. And there'll be other students for whom this is very uncomfortable, unfamiliar territory and would much rather shy away from it. So one of our challenges as coaches is how do we try and make this feel like a more welcoming field of training to those people that maybe don't necessarily have an interest in it because it does expand your way of thinking. Um, so if, if you're not willing to do that, you're also much more likely to just be waiting for instruction in other kind of areas and attributes of training. So I, I think cultivating this desire to be creative or at least this willingness to try and create is actually like a really, really important thing that we can do. And especially because a lot of artistic pursuits are things that a lot of people do at school. You do art at school, you do music at school, and then you go to university and then probably you never do those again. And for sure, there's a lot of, there are a lot of artists out there, but I, I think if you true, yeah. are naturally not, if you are naturally an artist, probably you either forget or just don't realize how many people give that up completely. 
Um, so if movement is the medium through which we can allow people to have some artistic expression, even if parkour in some ways was born as a more locomotive or functional way of movement, I think it's one of the, the powerful things that we can do to actually change people's lives. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I was speaking to um, uh, another coach uh, called Dom, who's from, from Norway, and uh, he's part of uh, his, his kind of company name is Team Exeo, E-X-E-O, and they make okay. kind of uh, parkour parks and stuff. And he, he, he mentioned um, two of his inspirations, uh, Pedro Thomas and uh, mm. Slava Petin. I, I, are you familiar with both of those guys? Uh, not the second one. Ah, okay. Sla- Slava is, oh, I'm probably going to get this wrong. He's definitely, I think he's from Latvia, actually. Yeah, I think he's Latvian. Okay. Um, incredible mover and um, definitely like back in, well, I say back in the day, but that's for me like 20, like 2009, 2010. Um, but yeah, he, and, and one thing that Don was saying, which was um, linked to what you, you just mentioned, is um, that those two guys seemed they're they're in the realm of 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 movement approach that that seems most aligned with expression Mm. and um you see it in the that you see it in the videos that they you know they are definitely not moving in a in the same way that for example stora um and and the kind of i guess what's become a a a uk style maybe you could say uh yeah which is which is characterized and you know influenced by people like phil doyle and 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 uh from people in in london um but yeah i i i think that's fascinating because a, a few very high level uh, uh practitioners that i've trained with and stuff they some of them really bat on bat on the idea of self-expression and they say well well, no. When I when I do parkour, I, it's it's work, it's it's development, it's progression, and I, I'm not expressing myself. But then, when you watch people like Pedro and Slava, mm. think, well, there's something a bit different. There is something different going on here. Whether whether it's right or wrong is is another debate. But it's there's something different going on with with their approach, and I find that like amazing. You know? Yeah. Well, and I don't want to say that everyone's individual practice must be that because I mean, I know at least one of the store guys that is also like very musical. So it could well be that for him, that's his form of artistic expression and that parkour is a much more physical practice. Um, So I think on an individual level, everyone should be allowed to choose, is this a way that they want to express themselves or is this a, a more athletic pursuit? Um, but I think our job as coaches is to open that door for people. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I think if we don't, then it's also unlikely for people for whom that isn't a very natural thing that they're going to find it on their own. Mm. So I think normalizing that and purely if we're talking about kind of very creative or expressive movers, uh, one of the very few people i follow on instagram that i don't actually know in person is luke albrecht oh i think i've said his name yes i'm very Uh, very pleased you've mentioned him because he's so underrated it's criminal he's so underrated i mean i I say there's very very few people i follow partly and 
quite a lot of parkour videos I don't watch because at various times, almost every video has just become an identikit copy of a video that I've already seen. And I, I stopped being inspired to watch them because so much of it just felt like remakes or reruns of my favourites. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. but almost every clip he puts out is like, I don't know that I've seen that before. Like that's a really interesting way of moving or way to use that space. And I, I just love that so much. Uh, it's also uh, a much, much less well-known athlete. Uh, my youngest brother also practices parkour. Um, one of the things I both like and respect about him is he'll just do what he wants to do most of the time. And sometimes that's like relatively weird stuff. Sometimes it's relatively normal. I remember like years ago being um, at the chain store and he was just like doing essentially like a huge diving Kong, but instead of going over it, he'd just like stop in an elbow lever on top of the obstacle. Right. And it's not, it's not that the act itself is either better or worse than anything else I've seen, but I'm just like, I just don't know if I've ever really seen anyone else do that. <laughs> but, but that makes me like think of new possibilities. And so I find that kind of idea very inspirational. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, and, Again, like, I'm I'm so glad you mentioned Luke because I I've been watching him for a while now. Um, I forget what his Instagram handle is. I'll put it in the description. But um, yeah, if you're watching this and you're interested in in kind of the more creative side of things and and using space in a very unusual way, I'd definitely check out Luke Albrecht. I think it, I can't remember his Instagram handle, but I'll put it all down below. Um, but yeah, he. Um, yeah, very, very, I'd love to train with him. I really would. Um, I think he's doing something quite different and uh, and just seems like very competent like across the board, like not just kind of with with good flow or good movement, oh, sorry, or good like jumping, but like with, with his kind of acrobatic influence and stuff. And Yeah, I, I'd always be interested to see a lot of these people in just like a normal training session because whenever you only know someone from their videos yeah i think it can be a little hard to get a sense of exactly what they're like um my feeling have from all the things i've seen is that it's not just what he's doing but the quality of his movement is very very good it's very smooth it's very soft in a way that some other uh, well-known athletes that, that i won't name but I do not get that impression watching their videos. Like it feels a bit more kind of sloppy and kind of chucking stuff to do it. And it, but it could be that they're simply more honest and like this was an attempt and it looks a bit sloppier. So like, I don't want to draw like conclusions. I don't say people are good or bad about it, but one of the things that always impresses me most is quality of motion. And I know like when I first started, Stefan was always, uh, Stefan Vigrou, one of the second generation practitioners who learned from David Bell, was always very keen on quality of movement being far more important than the scale. And it's one of the things that I try to impress upon my students. And it's actually one of the biggest challenges when you have someone who's naturally quite athletically gifted, but still relatively new to parkour, because actually scale will come quite easily to them. And what I want them to focus in on is doing things well and smoothly and softly and then expanding that into the scale that they already have um i think it to some extent it's also the same issue that a lot of parkour people have when they start climbing which is we've got us we've got some strength and we just tend to use that rather than climbing nicely and it's really fun which i think is why a lot of us do it 
but I don't know that it's useful for the expansion and development of, in our case, our climbing practice, but for a lot of, nat let's say, natural athletes, or at least people that may have worked very hard to become athletes, but trying parkour for the first time and just immediately trying to use all of their physical capacity. Mm. I think that's a, that's a nice analogy. Yeah, I think when I'm just thinking back to when I've gone to a climbing wall and just said, oh, I want to get that blue done or I want to get that, you know, I just want to get it, get yeah. it completed as a sense of uh, quick achievement, I guess. But yeah, um, I actually I actually started, I, I did some climbing lessons maybe a couple of years after starting parkour. And one thing yeah. I, I really found um, has stuck with me was that there's a coach who, Oh man, I mean, you'd laugh if you saw where I started climbing because it was just like this tiny leisure center with a, a little climbing wall that had just been built and they got this guy in and he, he was a bit he was a bit grumpy and a bit kind of... Uh, yeah. He wasn't... He, he wasn't the warmest, I'll put it that way. Um, yeah. but one, thing, one thing that stuck with me is that he, he... I think there was maybe me and two or three other people in the class. It was very, very small kind of climbing class. And, and he, he said from the very start, I think we did like a six-week course or something like that, and he said, okay, so, you know, here's the climbing wall. And we looked up at it and thought, oh, wow, you know, this is going to be great. And he said, we're not going to go up for three weeks. So we were all like, what do you, well, what do you mean? It's climbing. You go up. And he said, no, no, we're going we're gonna to use this. And he showed us the, this kind of part, which was just a traverse. Right, and yeah. We spent the next three weeks only doing traversing he wouldn't he wouldn't let us go up at all and at the time that seemed very i mean seemed very testing and very kind of oh well what's you know this isn't what climbing's about why are we learning all this stuff but then yeah, actually, yeah. when we then started to go up it was like ah okay so these are these are very important skills that need to be ingrained before you start adding height and um yeah it really stuck with me that one so um yeah yeah, and actually it's easier to ingrain them in that uh, more specific environment, whether in this case it was going sideways or in parkour, it might be deliberately having smaller scale for certain things. Yeah. Um, yeah, remove the temptation to cheat. Yes, 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 exactly. Um, I was going to say, if you don't mind carrying on, um, we've, we've been going for a while, but... Um, I'm I'll... very happy to. I, 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 may, I may pause you for one minute lavatory break, if that's okay. Yep, yep, go I'm for quite it. happy to continue. Yeah. I'll be right back. Aha, I have returned. Excellent, excellent. Um, cool, okay, so yeah, I, you know, I won't keep you forever, but um, one thing that I've, I talked to the other coaches about was less about coaching and more about you. So I was wondering about if you could, um, yeah, if we could just chat a little bit about how your own practice is going and um, sure. how old are you now, Chris? I am 36. 36 so you've been so you've been training for 17 ish years seven <laughs> that's mad okay so um it's crazy i don't think i've said that out loud since it was 17 like there's there's always that moment where like the number goes up 
and like you don't tell anyone for a while so like in your head mm. it's not that got that big and i remember and because this is the crazy thing if i now think back to you know, when i started 2003 or even like the first time that i met like well actually the first time i met sebastian would have been I guess like 2000, either late 2003, early 2004, when he came over one of the uh, UF days. But he'd have been training for 17 years at that point. So it's like the people that I held in that regard or that, that had that degree of experience at the beginning, at least purely in terms of years, I now find myself in a similar situation. So wow. yeah, it's a, mm. it's a step change that kind of creeps up on you. Mm. Well, I saw, I saw Seb at, at Chase Tag last year. And oh, nice! Yeah, was just. Uh, I mean, it's the first time I've seen him or met him in person, mm. and was just amazed, amazed at how well he was moving, how well he was adapting to the challenge, how well he was going against the young guns, you know, from all over Europe. Yeah. Um, incredible, absolutely incredible, and I, I just, I, I do respect him a lot for how he's maintained. Uh, well, just maintain such a such a a commitment, I guess, to, to parkour and 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 the mission and everything. <laughs> um, yeah. But, but yeah, I was going to ask you, kind of, yeah, how how how's your training going right now? We'll start there. So how 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 yeah. often do you train, or, or what do you focus on, and and all that? Apart from yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, lockdown has been very atypical for me. I say I'm very privileged to have my own uh, garden and my own uh, gym back there. Um, but because, I've, because I'm in the position, uh, the, the very fortunate position that I get to travel so much of my work, um, it means that doing any kind of consistent strength training um, has been very difficult for me over the last few years. Um, both through time and access to facilities. Um, whereas there's always opportunities for me to move. I, if I'm teaching a course, there might be some challenges I can join in on, or it might be that at the end of the day, I get to stay in a nice spot and like do some challenges for myself or do some movement. So I've primarily been using lockdown just to try and get a couple of months of very solid strength training uh, under my belt because it's an opportunity that I'm unlikely to or hopefully unlikely to have again we'll see what happens with the uh, management of the pandemic and yes and all that yeah. uh, but I'm, I'm I'm hopeful that this will be the only time I ever have two or three months relatively uninterrupted and for me even just having three months at London uh, at London in London uninterrupted is very very rare Mm. But at least normally I'd have, I'd still have classes and work and other commitments. Whereas now I've had time for myself. So I'm training. Uh, I think anyone that knows much about strength training would probably tell you that I'm overdoing it. And I'm sure uh, Tom Taylor being as knowledgeable as he is on the subject would tear my current training plan apart. Uh, but I'm basically doing like a, a pulling day, pushing day, lower body day, um, body day. Um, and then a rest day and repeat. Um, I've had a few acrobatic sessions in the garden because, um, again, it's something that when I travel, I don't have as much access to gyms and crash mats and that type of thing. Um, so the last couple of months have been very focused on things that I don't normally get the time to do, um, which hasn't 
included a great deal of parkour movement. Um, but I, I'm getting close to that changing because, like, I've, I've played around a little bit. I've got some scaffolding in my garden, so I've been up and over it. But I've not really been like drilling parkour uh, movements. Mm. Um, yeah, so yeah, I've become just a bad weightlifter for a couple of months. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's funny, you funny you mention having the time to do strength work because I. I well, I guess for a number of reasons, but I, I, I feel the same. And I think that, you know, f- for me, the last couple of years have been essentially coaching seven days a week, uh, yeah. if, if not six. Um, and, you know, demanding. yeah, and, you know, some of those days are literally two hours or two sessions. Um, but <laughs> uh, having that kind of mental headspace of like, well, so if I work out now am i going to be in an energetic state to be okay to do my sessions later um yeah. and that, that's been that's been a real challenge for me and I, i've found it difficult to to kind of balance that but so I, I understand completely what you mean because i'm i'm doing the exact same and i'm you know work, working out more than i ever have uh and yeah. um definitely feeling that well I guess thankful is the wrong word, but thankful for the time to be able to, 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 yeah. I, I think we can be grateful for the things that this has afforded us, even if we wouldn't wish it yeah. to have come about in such a way. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm following a, a similar thing. Um, I'm actually again, uh, shout out to Chris Scott. Do you know Chris Scott? I do. Uh, I believe he coaches with jump parkour in the Midlands. Yes. And if he's not, not still coaching with them, then he's very capable. I think trained uh, physio, um, very knowledgeable about a lot of things. He is. He is. And uh, <laughs> I definitely uh, sought on his guidance for um, for this period. So he's, he's designed me a program to, to follow. Yeah, I, I highly respect Chris. Um, he's, he's had a, a lot of setbacks um, over the last few years. And I guess maybe he's just, I don't know if there was a certain point of time, but he's really just completely dedicated himself to understanding biomechanics, training methods, um, how they can relate with parkour um and how how to get stronger essentially he's become somewhat of a of a strange gym wizard uh he he he's tried some very unusual methods and i'm sure has has, has looked very deep into a lot of different methods um what's interesting now is that he's he's the same age as me so uh we're both 26 and um whole life ahead of you still (laughs) yeah um and uh and he he's now kind of coming back to parkour essentially and uh is is using all these strength gains and it's crazy because you know he's just i i would say now he's probably in the best parkour form and strength form that i've ever seen him and he's been training for a long time as well but it's just i think it's so there's something very very satisfying about seeing him absolutely crushing some um some attributes of parkour so for example chris is 
potentially going to beat the world record for the uh, fastest five climb-ups time. Oh, nice. Uh, which, as it stands, I think someone in America got about eight point something. Um, and I think that Chris is, well, he'll probably correct me on this, but he, he's not only going to try and beat that, I think he wants to try and beat eight seconds, which is... Uh, Pretty, pretty crazy, um, to be honest. I think any time in any sport, a, a record has a chance to be established. Anything more than like a very incremental change is always like huge. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so he's doing that and he's, uh, he's also practicing some acrobatic stuff and getting that all on lock. And it's just, it's, it's exciting. Um, and I don't know where I'm going with this. I think I'll just kind of talking about, yeah, yeah, just, just training methods and how they can apply. Um, I talked to Tom Taylor a lot about whether he thinks that programming is, whether it's actually essential for, for progression. Mm. Um, what, yeah, what, but, what, what was his headline view on that? Um, his head, well, he sort of said that, from what I can remember, he said that to an extent, if you're wanting to take things more seriously and there's there's things that work you know there's things that that are helping people get stronger and faster and that they are really if approached approached in a sort of dedicated way they have a, a good chance of helping you improve yeah um, well uh, th- th- there's, there's also, also like a huge, huge um difference between those members of the community that um, for whom competition is an important part of their uh, their training and their practice, because then you do start to have ideas of kind of peaking for competition and essentially having a much more strict season to the way you train versus the idea of parkour simply as a lifelong practice and being kind of ready at any moment. And, you know, the journey being much more important than the peak, whereas... I mean, competition in any sport is all about peaking at exactly the right moment well, and yeah. how you beha- and how you behave in that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I don't want to go down the competition philosophical uh, philosophical rabbit hole, but it does mean that there's going to be a large number of people in the community that might benefit from certain practices in their training that won't be relevant to the rest of us. And it's the same if you look at general population and if you're just trying to get fit and healthy is following a bodybuilder's training program really the best way for the average person to get fit, healthy, and strong? Probably not, because their needs are completely different and their context is completely different. Mm. Um, so it might it might be that there's a whole whole array of specific needs that people that are taking part in competitions and how far apart they're spaced and is it just for part of the year and how do you use the rest of the year? I guess in the same way that people in incredibly cold countries, like it, in the UK, I think we're quite fortunate to be able to say, oh, you just go out and train in all weathers. Um, and I believe wherever possible that that is the case. That's part of the natural uh, adaptation of parkour. But mm-hmm. if, it's minus, if it's minus 40 and three foot of snow, sure, maybe try and go outside if it's safe for you to do so. But you're still <laughs> going to be, even if you're taking the same mindset into your training, you're still going to be limited in the types of things that you can do and maybe things you might need to do to supplement your general physical well-being in those situations 
And I guess competition places some of the same seasonal demands upon people. Hmm. So, so going back to yourself then, is there, are there things that you are working towards or, or would like to achieve? I'm not sure if achieve is the right word, but are there, are there, are there attributes yeah. in training that you kind of want or, or is it more just kind of maintaining a certain level and just enjoying it? Or how, 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 does, how does it feel for, for you at the moment? Yeah, um, I think the only like thing that I would specifically say I'd always like more, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'd love to be stronger, more powerful. Um, but the one thing that my training is always geared around, I'd say, is kind of being more consistent and more accurate. So not consistent in terms of how frequently I'm training, but consistent in terms of the quality and accuracy of my movement and my foot placement. And Because I, I think... It's both a marker of, for my personal practice that I like to use for quality, but I think it also gives you a degree of confidence and opens up doors of things that you can do because you know, you know, 10 times out of 10, 100 times out of 100, you're going to be within this range. And I think, I'd like to think my quality and accuracy is reasonable, but it's something that I always think could be improved and, uh, and could be better. Um, yeah, I, I think in terms of real training goals, that's the one that permeates my training. It's not necessarily a recent thing. I think that's constant and un- ongoing. Um, if I could pick out a couple of much more specific movement-based things, I got. I was getting fairly close to doing an Arabian on flat on a sprung floor before this all kicked off. <laughs> so, that, uh, yeah, because I, th- I think. If I think of more classic parkour movements, yeah, it'd be nice to have a bigger scale to all of them, but that's very general. I'm I'm happy just continuing to move and right. and try and apply them in different situations and find weird challenges to see if I can do. Mm. Um, so I, I don't necessarily have classic parkour movement aspirations, mm. but over the last over the last few years, I have become more interested in. Uh, some of the more acrobatic or tricking side of stuff. Right. Uh, go to local gymnastics places a couple of times a week when I happen to be in the country. Um, and standing Arabian is the one that I think has been <laughs> mo- most most dominant in in something that I could actually do. Like I'm trying to do twists. It took me a long time for my body to understand twisting in any kind of way. Like rotations, it was happy with, but twists were just utterly bizarre. Yeah. Um, so I'm getting closer to doing a front double twist into the foam pit, but not in a way that I think will ever be a, applicable for me or pliable for me rather in a real world environment. Right. And I guess for me, like, I don't think people need to have this distinction, but I've always had a clear idea of like, well, what am I doing? Because it's fun to do in this gymnastics space, but I know it's basically staying here. And which of these skills are movement? skills or techniques that i'd like to be able to apply in a whole range of environments Mm. so a lot of the more basic flips and rotations are things that i am able and i want to be able to do in a broader range of contexts but yeah like a double twisting front is really only something that i see as being for me a gymnastic trick trick. there'll be some athletes out there that will be happy doing that on glass or concrete or off walls and anything else but i don't see that for myself and i don't really I don't aspire to that for myself either. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, if I could get the ability to do a standing Arabian <laughs> just on a normal floor, it, it, it would be a really nice marker of like acrobatic progress, which is something that I have kind of spent some time trying to work on. Yeah. And it's also something that I can then just do should the mood take me. So, mm. Yeah, I've seen uh, some... People, people are changing their practice in, in different ways. Uh, so, for example, some of the, the Leeds guys that I have trained with and who have inspired mm. me quite a lot, um, they're now kind Is that of... From the Level Up or one of the other groups down that way? Um, I don't want to get in too much trouble, but I would, I would say they're not really associated people, with Level people Up. People from Leeds. Sure. Yeah, as in um, they they train at level up, but I don't I don't I think they're kind of they've always been their own group. Um, okay, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, but yeah, they've they've started um, like skateboarding. And nice. It's 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 interesting to me to see them adapting to, <laughs> I guess, a new start point you know some of them have never done any skateboarding before but are now consistently yeah. practicing in, in a very very similar way to how they first started parkour i imagine and getting that same sense of uh i guess sense of achievement from from small progressions yeah. um but also the, the, no i was just saying is that one of the really interesting things i'd love to see some hard data on this because <laughs> like it, it, it's just a feeling it's not it's just a feeling I have. It's the impression that I have from the people that I know. But I have this very strong impression that parkour people are much more likely to kind of spread into trying other disciplines and other activities than people I know that are interested in other uh, sports or activities. So I, I've got a whole bunch of friends that play football. And really, like, that's their thing. They're happy with that staying their thing. Um, not criticism, not good or bad. But most people I know from parkour whether it's trying skateboarding, trying more traditional gymnastic type stuff, trying hand balancing, getting into yeah, weightlifting, absolutely. Um, juggling, circus, acro yoga. Mm, mm. I mean, I, I still remember like two years, I'm going to say it was about 2007 or 2008, where a significant, much, much higher chunk of the parkour community than the normal community got really good at doing Rubik's Cube. <laughs> That was the thing because it was just like, okay, this is another random little challenge we can do. Or, and I, I, forget yeah. the, I forget the name of it, but the little like spike with the cups on the side and the ball on Ken, the string. Kendam. Kendam. Massive. But I, I think just the, the inquisitive <laughs> nature of the average parkour, uh, parkour practitioner and the kind of, it leads them to going down these paths and trying these things. And, and for me, I, I couldn't say that when you're doing that, you are doing parkour. But it is an extension of your parkour practice in the sense that this this desire to explore and challenge yourself spills yeah. over into other things. So, yeah, I'm not going to say that everything is parkour and go like completely zen on this, but I do think, but I do think the mindset that one develops through parkour means you are much more likely to just spiderweb to lots of other different things, whether there's they, those are physical pursuits or other interests. Yeah, definitely. I I I, I agree. I, I would love to see some sort of uh, some sort of data on that. Um, the the <laughs> yeah. I remember one a good friend of mine 
uh, who, yeah, he got into Rubik's Cube, but then at the same time was also doing plate spinning, juggling, handstand nice. work, and, you know, tending the chickens in his backyard, you know, like, <laughs> it just, yeah. uh, very, um, we're, we're an eclectic bunch, very eclectic bunch. Yeah. Um, well, it's, it's also interesting to see a lot of the parkour gyms or businesses like I think partly through business modeling but also partly through their nature combining with other activities or sports in their spaces so whether it is um, I know the level up gym in Leeds has a lot of cheerleading groups that go there as well yeah, yeah. Uh, at the chain store for a long time we had a CrossFit group that ran out of their uh, access parkour up in Edinburgh uh, room to move uh, their space is also a shared circus space as well. Mm. Um, so it's inter- it's interesting to see the other kind of disciplines that coexist with parkour in those spaces and the crossbreeding between the two. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and, and going back, going back to kind of different, I guess maybe different trails of thought of of getting older and changing your practice. I was listening to uh, the Height Drop podcast and they were speaking with Phil Doyle. And Phil, right. Phil seems to, I think he's based in Bristol at the moment and he seems to have this, he, he has an idea of making five, in some ways, send-off videos. Um, I, I kind of, yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's made me think a lot actually. Um, and I think Phil is maybe a few years old, maybe maybe a couple of years older than me, perhaps, I think. I think he's somewhere in the middle because I've got a very loose memory of, uh, a, I think it was a 13-year-old Phil Doyle coming down to Harrow like right. many, many years ago. I mean, like 2005 yeah. or six, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, so like, it's got to be, I think, late 20s. Yes, yeah, definitely. Um, but it's... it's it was it was interesting hearing him talk about this this feeling of um of peaking and uh, of kind of wanting to this slight pressure of wanting to kind of achieve his achieve his movement dreams before he can't yeah. achieve them anymore um and i was wondering what what you i mean yeah to kind of you're 10 years ahead of me and, and um, how do you, how do you feel about that sort of issue? Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting. I, I also think that if you take someone like Phil Doyle, he's in a different position in that he's a lot more famous, certainly as a mover. Um, yeah. And I think that probably, that probably does come with like a lot of pressure, whether that's internalized or whether it's pressure that he's put on himself or whatever it is. Um, so I, I, I wonder if that's for him or others in a similar situation, put this kind of pressure on a, I need to represent my peak. And also actually the way I'm defining my peak is in terms of physical scale or difficulty. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, th- I think that's like a, a different way of framing it. Cause like a, a peak could just be, it could be when I was able to do the biggest physical movements. It could be when I went the longest time without picking up an injury. It could be yeah, yeah. the time when I was 
the time when I was happiest and consistent in my training. Like there's all different ways of doing it. And it's so natural to fall down the classic sporting rabbit hole of your peak is just when I was at my athletic peak for speed, distance, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, so because those peaks may come at very different times. And if, if it's like, when was my best athletic peak? Like, uh, it's not impossible that those days are past me. I'd like to think it's not. And actually, there, there are ways that I feel stronger and uh, more yeah. rounded now than I was in the past, even if there's some specific elements where I know I was stronger in the past. Mm-hmm. But, but, but if my peak is, when am I going to come up with my most interesting stuff? Well, then there's every chance that's still in the future. So, um, but yeah, so if I were to try and define my peak for myself, like, I don't know that that has come yet. Um, and also, I, I don't like the idea of feeling that the peak's here because it means that when you're descending, you, you know you're on your way down. Yeah. Whereas if I don't know when my peak is, like, this could just be part of my natural fluctuations in training. Mm-hmm. Can you hear me? Are you there? Am I talking to myself? Oh. <laughs> but you could also make your, your peak, peak is like, like well, well, just, just how, how close, close am I to my, my maximum potential at this time, at this age? Mm. Um, which I also think is a much more useful way of doing it because if you're let's take a crazy example if, you, if you're a 70 year old and you're running a 15 second 100 meter sprint or something <laughs> I mean, i'm not even sure that's physically possible i'm not quite sure where the limits are but yeah. the point is you're, you're much much closer to the peak of not just your potential but even human potential hmm. than a 30 year old running a 13 second thing hmm. so just, so like measuring your peak by the best that you ever were rather than the best that you can be now Mm. just isn't a way I like to think of my um, kind of performance. And I think it sets yourself up for a lot of potential kind of negative feeling towards this idea of decline rather than I'm the best I can be now. And like, for me, the practice is always linked to like, it is a, a practice of longevity and a lifelong pursuit. So it's about being as strong and capable as I can be for life. And mm. that, that, that can only be true for the context in which I find myself. Um, so as that context changes, as long as my expectations change with it, I can still be happy and uh, successful in, in the goals that I set for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's also a, another difference in that I'd like to think that I'm, you know, just as a human animal, I'm a reasonable athlete. But I also don't think I've ever been a great athlete. So I don't know that I've ever got that close to hitting my potential. So it might be that as my potential is declining, I'm just getting closer to it. <laughs> um, I've never thought of that before, but yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, whereas if you are maybe a Phil Doyle or a Kai or someone like yeah. that, if you're much closer to your physical potential, that's not an avenue that's open to you whether that's like a physical thing or just a comforting lie that I tell myself, it's still some, it's still something that is true. Mm. Um, so I don't know what it would be to feel like if I was closer to that. Um, mm. But I, I think the nature of your practice changes both like with your age, with your experience. Um, and there's a lot of people 
I say we've had students in their 50s, 60s, older coming to class who are potentially moving the best that they ever have. So the idea that the idea that someone in that situation is like past their peak, like I think mm. I'd just like, mm. I would just reject as a way of thinking about it at all. Mm. Um, but whilst also recognizing there's a difference between someone being in their 60s and the most comfortable they've ever been balancing on a bar or at height mm. or jumping, whatever it may be, and someone who is moving in a way that is not as large in scale as they were doing 20 or 30 years ago. So it's not a value judgment about which is right or wrong, just that those two people are having very different lived experiences of what maybe jumping the same distance feels like to them. Mm. Yeah, yeah, well put, well put. Um, I had, had, a, had a message uh, on Facebook the other day from a friend of mine who, who's, who's keen to go to lease next year. So right. uh, a good friend of mine, Elliot, um, he, we, we've, been to, we've been to lease twice. Uh, mm. Unfortunately, and he's been with me both times, so he's kind of uh, you know we, we've got very good nudging. memories. Sorry, he's kind of nudging you to do it again. Well, well, yes. I mean, his idea is that um, you know there's, there's a group of us that have kind of stemmed from York, um, mm. him, and um, you know we've kind of we have separated in different ways. We've, we we live in different places now, and his idea was that you know. Let's let's try and organise a, a lease trip for next year to kind of bring bring everyone together and and just not 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 necessarily focus on training all day like we did uh, <laughs> those times in lease, um, but just just getting back together and and just going and and having fun really. But what's what's interesting in my mind is that every time I think of lease, you know, I think of the 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 pivotal, the pivotal uh, aspects of, of this area. And manpower is something that I've looked at twice. Right. And the first time I looked at it and I was maybe uh, ooh, 19, 20, and I thought, not a chance, not a chance. There's no way that I'm, I'm uh, risking you know, my life, essentially, to try this, this, this one jump. Went back a few years ago, looked at it again, and thought, mm, well, it's actually not as bad as I remember, but I'm still not just not in the right physical uh, realm generally, but in, in the actual yeah. moment, I'd been training loads and I was achy, and it just wasn't a good idea to take yeah. that sort of drop, you know, uh, in that sort of state. But now, you know, thinking ahead to, to 2021, and uh, I'm feeling, I guess, well, I'm definitely on a on an ascending strength curve, I guess you could say, in, in my in, in my legs and, and, and ability and stuff. And I'm thinking, well, should I spend the next kind of year or so having that as a very real, a, a re very real goal, and, and and questioning whether do I want do I actually want to do this? Why do I want yeah. to? And what does it represent for me? Because even just the thought of it like makes me feel nervous. But but part of that part of those nerves, I think, is is definitely the knowing that I I, I probably could do it. Um, uh, you know, mm. side, side prees are not my thing, but I I have taken a few hefty drops mm -hmm. in, in in the course of my training. So, um, 
Yeah, I, I guess I was wondering in your case whether there, maybe more specifically, there were any 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 things that you that you've had your eye on for a while that you think. Yeah, well, I wouldn't mind getting that done. Well, it's weird. I've came across a little piece of paper that I wrote. I don't know, it was like 10 years ago, maybe more, could have been before I moved house. Um, but on it, I had a combination of two different things. I had a, a bunch of physical targets, whether it is squatting a certain amount or yeah. whatever it may be. Um, but also like a list of specific jumps around London, like some of which don't exist anymore. Um, mm. But it's, it's about the last time that I can remember really specifically having like, these specific targets or like, like movement targets of things I'd like to do. Um, and like, there's definitely merit to it. Like always like goal setting within any discipline can help provide structure and focus to your training. It can potentially help provide motivation. Um, and, it, and it also can help be one criteria of success of, okay, I set this target. I achieved this thing. I've at this point, however, narrow or broad you choose to define that um but also if i think of a lot of my proudest achievements but they're just like things that i was able to do and not necessarily things that i'd like worked up to yeah, yeah. um and in some cases they might be things that i wouldn't have even seen if i'd been more zeroed in on this very specific target um mm -hmm. like, i can't remember Like, uh, uh, at Denmark, Denmark last year, year when I was at the international uh, gathering in Gerlo, there was just kind of a jump that I was particularly pleased about being able to do, but also because this was like the eighth or ninth time I'd gone and I'd never seen it before. Like I hadn't seen anyone else do it. Um, and I, it had never occurred to me as one for the future. So I, th the fact that not just that I was able to do it, but I was able to see it was like a really happy, Mm -hmm. achievement for me um, and it was also like very personal because it was just like okay well I, I've seen this thing and the only thing that's going to determine if I do it or not is like am I able to bring myself to do it mm -hmm. um, and so that, that, there's going to be loads of people for whom they do have like a significant personal reason and like in your case it might be well I remember what this jump looked like when I was 19 I remember what it looked like when I was 20 whatever so like this is a personal mark of progress in like how my uh, like relationship to this jump has changed mm. as a reflection of my training. And mm. I think that is a little bit, I think that is different to just going there and doing this jump because you know that other people have done the jump. Yeah. Um, so I, I think if people have got those jumps because they've developed an existing relationship with this challenge, they can be really useful as, okay, I want to go and do this thing. But, I, I guess I've just kind of avoided developing those relationships with individual jumps or movements mm -hmm. um, for, for a long time now. And so I don't necessarily have any, okay, I would like to do this thing. Mm. Um, there's definitely nothing that immediately springs to mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it, I, I guess maybe one of the reasons I asked you as well is because um, I think there is a slight, growing trend of of having these things in mind um again you know whether that's right or wrong 
But for example, um, I don't know whether you've read Callum Tip 500. I, I, I've read some of Callum's tips. I, 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 couldn't te- I couldn't tell you which one was which. This isn't like a, I don't know if you're a Red Dwarf fan, but this right. isn't like Crichton being able to recite every single Space Call directive. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, well, he specifically wrote a, I guess you could say an essay for, uh, for, for, for Tip 500, and it's caused quite a... A stir. A stir, maybe, yeah. I guess a, maybe a positive stir. It's not really, no one, I think very few people try to argue with Callum, maybe you could say, uh, as in... <laughs> he, he, let, let, let's hear what the tip is and we'll decide if they should have argued with him or... <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he, but, but one, one aspect that he talks about is this idea of kind of that you, in order to have a little bit more, he talks about structure. He talks about that a lot of people are very happy training and very, um, you know, proficient at going out and doing their thing. Um, but he talks more specifically about how if you want to, if you actually are serious about getting better, then you need to add some structure to your sessions in the same way that in a workout you do five sets of five at a certain way. Yeah, yeah. Um, he said that maybe some people it would be beneficial for them to use that type of approach with their parkour training. So going out and doing, you know, 10 rail precisions uh, at, at waist height, uh, for example. Um, and, um, but, but then it tied into this is, is, is an is the, is the idea of having specific uh, movement aims. So for example, you have a local spot, and he kind of suggests that, uh, you know, you should, you should make a list. You should make a list of the things and have it written down, the things that you think, um, yeah. I, I want to try and get this, I want to try and get that. Because it, not necessarily that that's the best thing to do generally, but for you to focus on having something to work towards. Um, yeah, so, I, yeah. I'm, I'm not contending with your view, but I, I just find it interesting how there are different parts. Of different yeah, well, I'd, I'd say I don't know that I was necessarily advocating my viewpoint as being a wider one that should be shared as much as kind of explaining what my personal viewpoint is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think there's definitely, I think the important thing is for a lot of people having some kind of goal setting or having some something to reach towards is important to provide that structure. So I guess. I agree with the like the base of Callum's tip, um, and I, I think that is one way of providing that structure. And if people maybe lack it or find that they are being very unfocused, then using that method to achieve that aim uh, could work well. But I, I think it's still by the time. So if you take your local spot, choose ten things that you want to do. It's like by the time I can do some of those, I might have seen something more interesting. And yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, what? Wh- why does that thing that I wrote down a year ago have more relevance or importance in this new, much more interesting thing that I've potentially seen? Mm. That is that is in itself potentially a result of my training. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good. Um, point. That's a good point. Yeah. So yeah, it's certainly not to fight against the view. I think like it it will provide structure for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. That need it and ways of measuring success and. 
I'd also say that the, the idea of having some kind of structure to your movement training sessions, may, maybe it feels like this is a new thing, but it's also, <laughs> you might it's also a, a really old thing. <laughs> like, like, uh, uh, some, some of the very, very early trainings were definitely just going on movement adventures, mm. but some of them were we're going to go and break this jump today. And like, you just think about the jump the whole time that mm. you're walking there. And then that's your target for the session. So I think in some ways it would bear <laughs> a lot more similarity to the very earliest types of training session. And maybe just over time, people have lost sight of that as one available training methodology, just into a, like, I'll go out and do whatever I feel like at a jam. Yeah. Um, so I, I, would def- I would definitely co-sign his idea that having purpose to your training sessions is going to be valuable and important for the majority of people yeah um exactly how you frame that can change maybe yes yeah 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 i i, I had a feeling you, you might you might say that um I, yeah i do find that super interesting um that he's kind of i guess it it feels more like kind of like shake shaking is, is not the right word at all but just kind of a bit of a like there's 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 definitely a feeling amongst people that train of this 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 looseness this freedom and i've talked about it in, in another with in another interview uh podcast whatever mm. and um I, it definitely feels that what you're talking about and what Callum's talking about is kind of a bit of a grabbing you by the shoulders and being like, hang on a minute. You can't just play with Ken Dahmer all day. You can't, yeah. <laughs> you can't just do a couple of flips and then leave. Like if you, if you do, if you do want to progress, there, there are things that, that maybe you should consider. Um, so I, <laughs> I find that funny. Cause also, you know, every time, every, every instance that I've, I've engaged with, Parkour generations, I, mm. I, I have been sore in some way afterwards, <laughs> and, wh- and whether that's uh, oh, have we still got you? Uh, yeah, I, I got as far as every instance you've been in parkour generations, you have been. Oh, what a terrible! What a terrible! Uh, uh, <laughs> I know, right? I, I, I said the word sore. Ah, I mean that's <laughs> also possible. Yeah, um, but I, I think that those instances have definitely. Yeah, give me perspective on like, well, you know, this is your body, this is your, this is your your muscle and bone and and fat and yeah, structure of your whole being. Like, you need to, you need to put some work in. It's not just going to change, you know. It's not going to change because you want it to change. It's you, you're going to have to put in work essentially. Yeah, I mean, I I, I would add. It's just going to sound like I'm defending us here, but I, I think. A, a useful context for people that are listening to it is that the intention of our training and the intention of anyone's training, whatever methodology you're following, shouldn't be to make you sh- sore. So it's not like the training is designed to make people feel sore and it will keep getting pressed to that point. It's simply if you are unfamiliar with training and, and it doesn't have to be in, in like the way that those experiences were for you. It could be if you're just going out doing a hundred massive running jumps like if you've not done that before, it will make you sore. And that's just a piece of feedback about how ready your body was for those stresses. Um, um, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, because, uh, because those are, I mean, any kind of feedback from your body is useful because it's telling you something about what you're doing. Um, and actually, probably the hardest thing for individuals to discern is like, well, is it telling me something about how hard I was training, what I was training, how frequently I was training, like what kind of, how much rest am I getting in the rest of my life? Like there's so many variables that affect that. Um, so like kind of knowing the lesson is one thing, but knowing what the lesson is trying to tell you is a different and much harder thing. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, we, we, we're, uh, we're approaching two hours, so that's been a, a pretty, pretty mammoth chat and it's uh, it. yeah yeah me too man yeah thank you so much i think that it would be yeah it'd be great to do this again at some point because we've not even touched on well to be honest with you i'd love to hear more about parkour generations and how they yeah. are going going forward and and um what they're yeah what what they're aims yeah yeah exactly um with, with moving forward and, and how they are as a as a as a company and a, as an organization um but i also I also you know definitely for another pod, podcast but it'd be great to hear your your views on fig and um developments in that area i believe you're yeah. tied to because i mean I, I, i'll be honest I, i've lost track um but i'm i'm i I get the impression that you're quite on track with things to do with. Oh, well, I'm obliged to be at least partly on track because I'm one of the directors of Parkour Earth. Um, yeah. And, and what, certainly by no means the only thing that we're focused on. But one of the things that we are most focused on is trying to help maintain autonomy for the parkour community at large. And I, hopefully we, we aim to we aim to be a useful vehicle for the community through which to uh, maintain control of their own practice. Yeah. Um, but the, the ultimate goal is to make sure that people that practice and live parkour are the ones, the ones that, that help, help to get, get shape, shape um, its future and uh, its spread and its wider kind of public uh, conception of what it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, definitely, definitely. Um for another for another chat i think um yeah, well, we can put some time in it. yeah but um yeah again thank you so much man um i, I definitely want to say uh well personal thank you again for helping me get my level two that's you're welcome that has significantly changed my life and also uh yeah thank you for continuing to do what you do helping other coaches and uh being being a good a good role model so um i, I appreciate that chris I appreciate that, man. Thank you very much. And um, yeah, hopefully, well, I, I'm going to have, by the end of the, all these podcasts, I'm going to have a long list of places I, I want to try and get to, to try and train with people. Um, yeah. so I, I, I will let you know when I'm in London next. And hopefully, Do it. Um, you never know. You never know. We might be able to get a session or something. Yeah, hopefully before 2022. Yes. Yeah, okay. Well, uh, I will stop recording there and pretend to say goodbye uh, because it's the end of the video, but we'll, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so thank you so much. And um, yeah, stay safe, man. Will do. Thanks, buddy. You too. See ya.